You're listening to Conversation Balloons, interviews with experts and friends about how the generations can help each other thrive. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Check out this episode. We are excited and honored to have an important guest today. Dr. Perong Lin is Deputy Secretary General for Operations for the World Evangelical Alliance, which serves and speaks for the world's roughly 650 million evangelicals in international scholarly, business, and church settings. Her master's is in organizational leadership, and her Ph.D. is in theology. Dr. Lynn has spoken and published widely on both of those subjects. And to keep her further occupied, Perong is a wife and mother. Originally from Singapore, she speaks with us today from near Bonn, Germany. And welcome, Perong. Thank you very much. Hi. Would you be able to tell our listeners a brief sketch of what the global definition of evangelical is? <laughs> this is like the, the million-dollar question, <laughs> if we all solve it. I think what we always say, um, depending on how high you are in a building and how long this elevator speech gets to go, I will answer based on a very quick elevator speech. And as a theologian, you can appreciate that goes on for a few pages. Um, but yeah, basically we say that an, an evangelical is someone who believes in the evangel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who um, basically came to this earth, lived our human experience, who having experienced everything, chose at the same time for who understood sin, but he has also died for our sins, someone who has not sinned, so that we can be reconciled to him and God. Yep, mm -hmm. him as God. Yep. So that would be my 15-second answer for what okay. evangelical is. Yeah. That's a good, a good one and uh, a, a pure one. Um, would you like to tell us about some of the current projects of the World Evangelical Alliance? Sure. So um, the World Evangelical Alliance is, as um, Leah said, it's an alliance of alliances and a network of networks. So currently, one of the things that I'm rather occupied with is um, the war in Ukraine. We are actively supporting our church um, denominations there in Ukraine and, and helping them to respond to the needs of the people, both in the church and also outside the church. So that means um, bringing them financial resources from other alliances around the globe, be that in Singapore, in Mauritius, um, in Latin America, as well as um, expertise. We have um, different networks, one in human trafficking, uh, one in peace and reconciliation. So we try very hard to think about how we can support um, our brothers and sisters who are in need wherever they are. So that's one, um, our alliances. We also try to strengthen our different networks. So I'm currently trying to make sense of our global evangelism network. So this network tries to bring together all the existing evangelical organizations, uh, movements, the different things out there, and we try to put them together and have them be more you know, more easily understood by the local churches around the globe so that it will not just be seen as 
um, be it a Western construct, something that's very far away, but something that all churches can also um, work with and use as their resources. That's wonderful. Um, I like to ask lately this question of any church or Christian leader, what part of your work requires the supernatural? Um, as, as you put it, I am currently in a very interesting phase of life. I, I joke that I wish God had my life currently in two seasons, you know, season of being a mother to young babies. And then when babies grow up, then be in a season of being in this role. But I find myself in this um, season where I keep telling my husband I cannot do it all. You know, I I, can, I I don't feel like I can win in life at the moment because something is all. There is always an opportunity cost, and and I keep reminding myself that God's grace is sufficient for me for the times where I really mess up or when I am not able when I drop a ball here and there. It it's okay. His grace is there and continues to be there for me. So I think my being currently requires supernatural. <laughs> yes. Every moment. I yeah. need thee every hour. As yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and all the other existential the songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, could you tell us a little bit about what your own devotional life is like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think to talk about my devotional life, I should talk a bit about what, how I became a Christian. So I come from Singapore, um, where today I think about 15% of the population is Christian. So that meant that when we were growing up, uh, we did not go to church. My mom was, um, I would say, a very open person, but extremely spiritual. So we would go to the temples, the Buddhist temples and the Taoist temples. Um, we would, she would pray and help and get amulets for us. So basically, as a child, we would have to drink something written by a monk. Um, she would burn it and we would drink it because then we in in we somehow managed to get the blessing into us. Yeah. So we did a lot of these funny things, and um, at ten years old, my parents decided that they needed to teach us good values. So my mom and dad um, started church shopping, you know. My dad's mom, my grandmother, uh, was a Christian, but that was the only connection to the Christian faith. For my mom at that time, she felt that it was a rich person's um, thing to do, not meant for normal Chinese-speaking Singaporeans. Yeah, because our past is such that um, it's a colonial faith. The British were the ones who were the first Christians, and so... If you are a Christian, you have co-opted into the whole colonial masters and their livelihoods. Um, so as a, in a series of different church experiences, we started with the Seventh-day Adventist, and then we ended up somehow after a few years in the Salvation Army. And today my parents go to a more Pentecostal church. Um, so all this to say, um, my spiritual journey is one that is not fixed in one tradition um, it took it took my theological studies to really appreciate that there are traditions with differences in the different traditions because that was not my experience um, I find God in the Bible of course I I struggle with deep um, 
questions. I think many people are happy with just, and so the Bible tells me so. And I, and I guess that's why I studied theology. And so I would read the Bible. I would think about it. I would struggle with God, talk to God. And, um, and as you might appreciate as theologians, there are always a million ways that one verse is written and you can find different theologians to read it. So I do a bit of that. I read, I exegete, and then I let it seem simmer and go to nature, walk and talk to God. And basically, I feel like I have this ongoing conversation with him every day on the different things that happen in my life. Um, but I try to put some structure in it here and there, um, especially dealing with all the different church leaders in my life. It feels very important for me to experience God myself as well, you know, and not just take in what other people say is the right answer. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's that's a lot of wisdom. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of words. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you you rightly sense uh, the responsibility that you carry to to be sincere in your faith. You know, um, if that hollows out, that can be very dangerous. And I I find it very comforting that uh, the Bible tells us that his sheep hear his voice. We we really do. Um, but we do have to to take time to listen and uh, do it in a, a, a way informed by the truth of Scripture. So that's that's wonderful to hear, Perong. Um, well, I wonder if today you we could benefit from two areas of your expertise and your broad research and just your huge exposure to worldwide uh, large. Um, demographic swaths of Christian people and uh, church people, which are not totally the same thing. <laughs> um, first of all, I wonder if we could talk about what you're seeing in the different generations, since that is what our show is about. Um, and then also I want to hit on um, your interesting um, learnings from the life cycle of an organization. Many of our listeners are connected with nonprofits or churches or uh, other organizations that have life cycles that I think that would be a good insight for them. So first of all, could you give us uh, the 35,000-foot view of, of the generations in church these days? First of all, with children, I know you're very experienced with this and that uh, World Evangelical Alliance has a, um, a children's network that you have, um, you certainly are aware of the current their current findings. What are the children of um, to today's children needing? What do they bring to the church? What do they need from the church? I think it depends on where the church is at. When you are in Asia, in Singapore, for example, where it is a lot more a mission feel in its sense that many people are not yet do not yet know Jesus, I think that children require a safe space, you know, to to explore who this Jesus is. Um, there is, and maybe for another person in Germany, it's the same. But I mean this in the a safe place to explore Jesus as opposed to Buddha, 
to you know Vishnu, to Shiva, to the different other gods out there. Um, it is a safe space for them to to ask their questions, to think about it from a both an experiential way as well as an intellectual way. So to not divide that for them. So just a safe space, let them experience it. Um, for example, our church, our children's network works very closely with our different alliances around the world to understand what are they currently doing. How are they are they in any way putting children on the map of what the church should do? Sometimes children are very neglected. Um, and as someone who now actually has to live with two babies or two children, I, this becomes a real thing to me. It's not just something I study, which, which is always interesting. Um, so I think for someone that comes from a mission-oriented um, country, it's important to give a safe space for children to to experience God, to, to recognize God. You know, for example, one of our members, which is a very known NGO, World Vision, whom I work with for a long time, they talk a lot about um, spiritual formation of children. And that includes just having children recognize God in wherever they are, you know, to be able to identify that this is from God. And say, now, if we talk about what does a child here in Germany need, um, I think that they need to also be given space to experience, but from a very different perspective. Not from a perspective of, as opposed to Vishnu, Buddha and all, but from a, this is not just my tradition, this is not just my culture, but this is something that continues to be real today, you know, something that I can find relevance in, um, I think is important. And that that is also a big challenge in light of um, the social policies here, which sometimes make God less relevant in our societies. Yeah. Yes, I've often thought about the fact that with other species, they need a certain amount of habitat in which to mature. They need some amount of space around them in which to learn of their skills safely. And it's, it's true of humans and, and Christians too. We need to give them a safe space in which to explore and master things and, and uh, relate to each other in this, this setting. What about uh, kids in um, Southern hemispheres like uh, Africa or South America? Any comments there? Yeah, I think they need to be given a voice. Um, when kids are from many of these countries, there are a lot more of them per family, you know. They are not maybe as precious as they might be if there was only one child per family. Um, and often they are seen as one of many and not as valued. I'm sure they are valued, but not in a very intentional way, you know and how it's important for them to understand deep in their hearts that they are it, that's only one of them in this world, and they are also special and made in the image of God. Um, and to be able to share that in a way that makes sense to them and not um, violate all sorts of different um, yeah, culture. I think that generally cultures can be tough on children, especially if they are too many of them, you know, they are seen and not heard, they are burdens, they are trouble, they are too much effort, and, you know, they become street kids, so they need to be 
they need to be disciplined. They need to be put away. And it's important to give them the space to be human as well. That's really a good insight. I, I uh, noticed in my church, the families that have six or seven children, I have trouble even learning all of their names. And they, <laughs> I see them six months later and they look a little different and I've lost track of who's who. And the only ones that really I feel confident are keeping track of those individual hearts are their Sunday school teachers because they're divided up according to age. And there, those kids are not just an aggregate. Um, and that's so important. Well, what about teenagers? What are you seeing among that age and stage? I always joke that teenagers would be my least preferred ministry from God <laughs> because they are the they are the most um they are a bit of everything, right? They are a child, but they think that they know it all, so they have the adult in them. Um and but yet they are also very filled with enthusiasm. So I think it's extremely important to give teenagers responsibilities because they will run with it. You know, they will they will do good with it. We need to empower our teenagers and and mentor them. They they are craving that role model. They are not going to just do something because they need to be obedient, but I but they are really looking out for people to be like when they grow up, um, and to learn different skills and to figure out where their space in the world is. I think of a church in Singapore called the Heart of God Church who spoke to us in our previous um, General Assembly and they talk about how we should not see teenagers as emerging leaders, but they are already leaders today. And that, that was a very interesting insight for me because we always talk about young people as emerging leaders. Um, and he challenged us to think about if, if this young person is ready to accept responsibility, what makes this person different from another older person? And I thought that was, that was interesting to think about. If they are in church and they are teenagers, they are unusual already. <laughs> they are set apart. Um, yeah. And in most cultures, they are a minority and mm -hmm. uh, they are, they need to be equipped. Exactly. Uh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, they and they're digital natives and they have so many networks that they can influence with all that technology and working those thumbs on the, their devices and uh, so many temptations that, you know, previous generations didn't have. They yeah. are they're going to have to be really great at saying no as well as saying yes. Yeah, and I think that it's important, therefore, to not make it harder for them in church. You know, mm -hmm. I was talking to someone last week about how as the church, we have our rules, we have all the different things out there, but it's so important to not just be known as what we are against, but to be known as what we are for. And I think mm -hmm. with young people especially, it's important to be to be an inviting space for them to be. You know, they, they are looking for that that thing out there and they are passionate and they, they want to be part of something. They want this sense of belonging. How can we provide that for them and love them through this special space that they are in right now? Yeah, they want a challenge. They need yeah. a challenge, a positive challenge. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. 
how about um, adults, um, the, the uh, center of life, those that are out there bearing the responsibilities that are having to, when I think of the word responsibility, I think of also responsibility. They're the ones that have to respond to change. It's not the future. It's right, it's right now, and they're, they're having to deal with all the challenges that are, and they're responsible for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you seeing in them? Um, I think, I mean, in general, these people form the biggest demographic of the church in general, or, or we hope that they will. Um, and we need to support their response, or rather we support their response through the different functions that they are in. Um, be it in at work, be it you know. So you have workplace ministry, you have um, all the different kinds of jobs that they do, and how that applies to their faith, like working in the nonprofit, so on and so forth. Um, what I find interesting, which I, I guess this is the church, we were trying to think about, you know, what is the value proposition of the church? So a very business technical term that is used for the church. But the church thinks in terms of a being, you know, like I was going to say, there's men's ministry, there's women's ministry, and how the church helps these adults in that. Um, but sometimes I think that this men's ministry, these women's ministries kind of stereotypes the people. Um, and especially my mom is way more feisty and has way more energy than I ever will. And I remember when we first went to church, um, she was rather excited to attend a women's camp. Um, but she came back extremely disappointed from the camp because they were knitting. They were, <laughs> they were talking about baking cakes and all sorts of different things um, without going into the heart of issues. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and she was like, she can't knit to or she has no patience to knit. And, <laughs> and she's like, it just made her feel worse as a human being. You know, it does not in any way help her to wrestle with her faith. Um, so I think that the church is it's important for the church to stay relevant in the challenges that the person is facing, not just pres- presume or prescribe a certain set of rules and you know things that the person should be doing to mm-hmm. relax, you know, to focus on God, but to, to mm-hmm. think with them, okay, devotionals are important, but maybe you don't want to do it five minutes before you sleep or wake up, but how else can you do it? Why is it important? And to journey with them through these questions. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, yeah, just to help that stage of life in uh, time management and prioritizing. And you all... Uh, in, in World Evangelical Alliance, you do have a family support m- ministry, or um, yep. tell me about that. So there is this thing called the Family Challenge, um, and it is a ministry that seeks to um, have disciple making or discipleship as core to its to its being as a family, you know, disciple making does not happen only at church. It should primarily happen within the family. And I think this ministry is trying to to keep to 
to teach people or to equip people with the resources for this to become a reality. That it's not um, a Sunday Christian and a Monday to Saturday do as you wish, but faith really comes from the home, the way the parents model love and understanding and belief to with each other and with the children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about elders? What do you see in the older population of, of Christians, retired people, mm-hmm. that demographic? Um, we have, I, I see two main groups. I mean, again, I don't wish to stereotype, but I think there are generally two main groups. One who believes that they have a lot to offer and wants to stay active. And the other who feels like they are tired, you know, and they are just, they cannot keep up with this world. It's too much change happening and and this and they just feel a bit left out. Um, and the church can respond to can and should respond to these two groups very differently. Um, We have many volunteers within the first group who feel like they want to do something and there are lots to be done. (laughs) And we try very hard to engage them to show them that, you know, we are happy to work with you if technology is not your main um, way of managing. That's fine. Let's let's work on that. But you have your wisdom, you have your, your expertise and your experience and you should somehow put that in. Yes, last week we, two weeks ago, I was in New York upstate for operations team meeting. And one of my team leaders is um, going to be 70 this year. And, and I was very happy to have him around to share his experience, to share his being, you know, he was very calm. He, he helps to temper my <laughs> my very hyper activity in my brain. He helps to keep us to some level of um, let's do this, let's do this in a stable way. So I was very appreciative of having that. And for the other group who feels a bit left out, I think that the Bible has a lot of verses that talk about you know we run the race, we end the race well, and to 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 get, teach us about perseverance. And there's much that we can support them with in this whole learning of perseverance and practice of perseverance. Beautiful. Well, let's talk for a minute about um, the part of your book, which uh, I'm referring to is it's a countering mission drift in a faith-based organization. And um, in that you talk about the life cycle of an organization uh, pages 113 to 15, um, in talking about uh, world vision, your your book, uh, to explain to my audience, was a, a very scholarly analysis of world vision and, and its evolution. And uh, you were uh, on, on the staff of world vision in a couple of different capacities, uh, Asia Pacific, coordinator or what was your title yeah i was working in the hr department and then after that i moved to the faith and development department as a consultant because this stuff the people of the organization and how that impacts really the religious understanding was fascinating to me and so yeah it was quite done with writing contracts so i asked if i could go do more of a research-based job yeah yeah okay well um so these stages, 
uh, that you articulate that are um, based on uh, another scholars, but it was useful for your analysis. And I think maybe to summarize for our listeners, what the stages are might might be helpful to them in thinking where their work is um, in a larger um, framework. So you talk about the existence stage, survival stage, success stage, renewal, and decline. And uh, nobody ever thinks about being part of an organization that may someday be in decline, but it may be the will of God. It may be the natural, um, you know, evolution of that group. And, uh, you know, here in the U.S., I've been thinking about uh, the, the stages of, of a social uh, and morality or oriented organizations and when they achieve an objection uh, objective in policy and politics and get their their view enshrined in law what happens to those advocacy organizations and usually they mutate to to go on further than their original uh, objective and uh, sometimes become extreme. They may continue to exist, but then they they go far beyond what uh, the public originally endorsed. And uh, because they have to keep fundraising and justifying their existence. But anyway, um, your analysis was, uh, I think, useful for um, healthy organizations that are on on this path, this life cycle. And I started thinking about generations of organizations. So um, can you describe the existence stage of an organization? Yeah. Um, Firstly, just a word on organizations. They are not, you know, they are not made by God. They are made by men. And so they are not, the DNA can change through time. Um, we, we humans engineer an organization based on what they think the environment requires. Yeah. And so what this theory is, is basically a phenomenon. So an experience. So the author was trying to map what he felt was the life cycle of an organization. He was very clear that he did not want it to be prescriptive. Like we do not want to say that after um, an organization is renewed, it will decline. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the not. plan. Yeah. I think it was more to, to show that this is what happens if nothing is done. This is, you know, if there's no human intervention to think about it, this will happen. Um, so having said that, the, the theory looks at the organization through four different lenses. So the kind of structure it's in, the situation that it's in, how decisions are made, and what kind of strategies the organization has. Um, so if we quick think a bit about World Vision, since this was about World Vision, my studies, um, at, in the beginning, World Vision was started by Bob Pierce, a very a Baptist, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, a Baptist missionary who was traveling around trying to um, tell people about Jesus. And one day he went to Korea and he was trying to tell somebody about Jesus, but um, 
that did not, so this little girl was converted, but her family threw her out because she was converted. And the nuns basically says, okay, now you've converted her, now you need to give her something to eat. You can she she believes in a Jesus. It's not just a word. Now we need to back it up with deed because this she is obviously not the only one. She was in the end, I'm sure, used as the poster child. Um, and so started the whole idea of we need to support people's needs as well, not just in in you know proclamation of the gospel. Um, so it was small. Bob Pierce did whatever Bob Pierce wanted to do. He went around, scooted around and converted people, gave people some money here and there. Um, and so Bob Pierce decided what he wanted to do. So the decision making was on him around. It was informal. It was simple. And he decides he does whatever he wants to do and he wins or rather World Vision thrives because he was the first in the market. A few years I later. Think it's really interesting that, of course, the, the natural thing is that you start by talking about a person, mm-hmm. an organization. The, the seed of that is usually within one person then mm-hmm. who finds the need, uh, yeah. people to gather around them. But in your book, which is exhaustive, uh, hundreds of pages, he, his name is almost the only individual's name in yeah. the whole book. It's a very nameless faceless book in a way yeah uh, it's it's abstract but but it starts with a person and and one of the challenges is right after that existence stage is how do you hand it off yeah how does the individual multiply him or herself and get it into a, a structure so that you know you say that the the structure with Bob Pierce zipping around on his motorbike was Virtually, it was just very informal and non-existent, really. Yeah, and actually what happened with World Vision was a bit sad. Um, There are lots of books out there. I think his daughter wrote a book that I referenced to. He basically burnt out. You know, it was not sustainable what he wanted to do. His family Mm. had a bit of a family crisis going on. He burned out. The people who were supporting him around the world could not account for the work that he was doing. So there was a bit of a crisis at World Vision and they basically asked him very nicely to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on one hand, it's really, it's very sad from a personal level because, and he started Samaritan's Purse. So for him, it cannot be that sad. But, you know, um, it's sad that, that I don't know if one would today call this a story of success for for an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, But for an organization, what they did at that point in time, which is why I say this is a human construct, they decided that to survive, they needed to put some structures in place. They needed to have decision-making that is more than just one person. You know, they needed to put some formality involved. So this is what we call or what the theory calls the survival stage of the organization. So you become a bit more, less chaotic, less um, innovative in many ways. You put, you become more stable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you do that well enough, you do that really good, you then succeed, you know, because you no longer, you, you kind of figure out what the problems are and you, you clean it up a bit more. And then that's where World Vision really succeeded and it, it started doing really well because the business model was a good one. You know, there was a real need to support these people. And so this is what they call the success um, stage where it becomes a lot bigger. 
it's therefore a lot more functional, a lot more formal, um, and it's reliant on information. It's not just a person who decides what to do. But we I also can see that I can see that the skill sets and the spiritual gifts of people at each stage in an organization's development are quite different. So the skill set of starting an organization like World Vision is quite different from that needed for one of these later stages. Definitely. You, you don't want somebody who is excellent at um, managing at the stage when there is nothing to manage. <laughs> right? You want somebody who has ideas, who has a vision, who who thinks about what the future can look like to be at the start. Um, And I think this is where God is excellent in having all of us have different gifts. Um, And I agree with you. I mean, just a little addendum outside this policy, this um, theory. I feel like the WEA today is a mix of different stages because we have so many different entities. And this is why it's very fun. It's a very diverse, it's very colorful. Um, but I find my role a bit, sometimes I feel a bit schizophrenic because <laughs> the, the function I take with the different entities differ based on where they are. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Sometimes I have to be more innovative because that's where they are at this time, at this point. Uh-huh. And in other areas and ministries where they are a bit more far along, then I play a more structured role um, to mm-hmm. to rein them in and to try to put some structures involved uh, inside it. So it really is a transition to from idealism to a more pragmatic uh, yeah. approach later in. In the maturity of the organization. That's right. When I mean, when I wrote this dissertation, which is now a few years ago, um, World Vision was at a stage where it was trying to figure out what the future is. They have since come up with a new strat- strategy called Our Promise. So there is a, the organization lives on. <laughs> it has not declined in that sense. Um, but if organizations don't do something, they can decline, you know, because the world will move on if they keep doing what they're doing, like blockbusters, you know, I think it's a American video chain. They did not move on with thinking about Netflix. They, they are like, no, this is what we do. We do it really well. We should keep doing it. Um, but the world has moved on. And how do we keep up with times and move on and to think about how we can do something about it instead of going, no, this is who we are. This is what we have done and we will stick to it. So there is the need to be flexible. Yes. It's tricky because how do you hang on to your identity? I wonder if mission drift for world vision was more identity drift. Uh, Yeah. So I think it's how one describes mission. Um, I, I think that. Long ago, when Bob Pierce started the organization, it was about, you know, we want to save souls. That was, that was really core to why he began this ministry. He was and feeding them, helping them with their livelihood was not, was just a means to an end. Right? Today, I think the organization will say we want to provide development and we are in a Christian organization 
but the idea of saving souls is not as central as it was. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I think that there is that is for an organization to decide what they want to do. Um, but it has since moved on. Yeah, it has no longer wanted to play the role of saving souls. Do you think that the turning point came when they World Vision started functioning in countries that demanded that they not explicitly share the good news of Jesus? And they had to they had a dilemma. Shall we at least be able to feed the hungry, but be silent with our with that message? Do we want to do that or do we let those people go hungry? That's a hard dilemma. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> yeah, we, we are very fortunate that we only need to talk about it and not live that because that's like you say, a very hard thing to do. Um, I argued in my book that that one can share the gospel and World Vision does it actually or rather they have a policy that says that they want to share the gospel in life, word, deed and sign and also for a very long time they talked a lot about the need to be incarnational in our work um, you know, so we are in an incarnational ministry our work should reflect the person of Jesus Christ we want to provoke the question why are we doing this and so I think that they have a very excellent thought-out theology on what they should do. What I think, if you ask me what the hiccup was, is that at some point in time, it was very hard to measure. It's hard to measure incarnational living. Jesus, the, the idea, an organization is a modern construct person of God, our faith has happened 3,000 years ago and continues to happen. It's not, it cannot be contained in a modern construct. We need to give it space. I, don't, I think that it's important to um, try to apply it in a modern construct, but it is more than that. And so it became hard for, pe- for people to measure our Christian faith within the organization. I think that today, World Vision tries very hard and they have many more measures and um, indicators on whether they are being spiritual in their work. Yep. Hmm. And is there anything else you want to say about the life cycles, the renewal or uh, the renewal or decline stage? Um, I think it's important. It, it, for me, the main reason why I put it down was that it is like a mirror. It might be very painful to think where we are or where an organization is, but um, having it in these categories can help to the, uh, the leaders of the organization to think through what the problems are, you know, because when we are sitting down and thinking through our problems, it can be complicated. It can be hard because there are just so many problems. And so this provides us with some tools to categorize what the issues are. And as a mirror, helps us to think, okay, where do we want to go from here? What do we want to do next? So that we do not inevitably end up in a decline. Unless you want to decline, but I assume that's not <laughs> the intention. Yeah. I uh, am, am so appreciative of your time and uh, we had to start a little late today and you like a good christian have gone the extra mile perong i thank you so much for um 
your wisdom, and is there anything else that you would like to to say to our audience about your work? Um, you are firstly very welcome. This is this is fun. I was more nervous about it, but you are being a very good host. And uh, for people who don't see us, she's smiling right now. So she is really a big, very fun to talk to. Um, I think what is what I would like to maybe end to say um, in terms of intergenerational leadership or uh, it talks for me it's about being okay with differences um you know i might be in a different stage of life with as someone else but that's okay there is still some value and some beauty in working together um and basically that in many ways is the story of my life as a younger Asian woman living um, in Germany and working with the World Evangelical Alliance. Most of my colleagues are older, are male, are white, European in descent. Um, but I find it fascinating. I am generally speaking enjoying this diversity, you know, trying to, and, and I think our um, Secretary General gives us space to be who we are. And so I do not have to worry too much about the fact that I'm the kid in the room <laughs> to say, so to say, um, there is space to give my opinion. And I think that I wish this was a bit more replicated in churches around the, the globe. Um, this is a prophetic model. We all bring our gifts, and if we do that in a way that shows love and respect, I believe that the Holy Spirit will be pleased, and He will help us and support us in what we do. Yep. That is a, um, a beautiful note to end on, uh, a note of humility and creativity, and uh, it glorifies your God. And so I, I thank you for that final comment and uh, we will send you on your way and thank you again for coming and joining us thanks for listening to conversation balloons look for more episodes and information at leahfarish.com that's l-e-a-h-f-a-r-i-s-h.com and follow me on facebook and instagram